about real people for real people. I wanted to create a space where I share my true feelings and those of my guests about what it's like to live in today's world. The challenges we face and how we deal with them or don't. What about all that stuff that's just not said but should be? You know, the conversations that we really want to have but don't. What do we really think and feel? What about our regrets, dreams that we have and the stuff we should be doing but we don't? Each week, I'll be here talking to real people about real life. This is a very honest look at life and hopefully by listening it will help you to have a better understanding of yours. In today's episode I'm talking to Sharon who lives in Melbourne with her husband and son. Sharon works for Australia's largest early learning provider. We discuss what it's like to be an includer and trying to help people solve their problems and the challenges of being able to read people. The unbelievable 10-year journey of trying to conceive, dealing with miscarriages, and then the joy of finally giving birth. I really hope you enjoy our conversation as much as we did. What events in your life have made you the person that you are now? Interesting question. That's a, it's also a very big question it's a very to big start question. off with. Very big question. So obviously having my son would be a factor. So I had my son four years ago. And as anyone knows, having a child absolutely changes your life. So that would definitely be one. Getting married or probably not getting married because I was already living with my husband or partner at the time. So that wouldn't be as big, though it does feel different when you get married. Even when you've been living with someone for a long time and then you get married, there's something around when you, especially I think maybe as a female, you potentially now not so much anymore but you might take on their surname and you become like your own new family unit and then maybe when you have a child like that sort of broadens your family unit you're 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 sort of this initial like you're you're a starter of a family unit so to speak but obviously meeting my now husband definitely changed my life because I met him and I was living in Australia I moved to the UK to be with him so that's obviously a massive change in, in your life. And I also think in terms of my career, what would have been really big for me is I was working for ABC Learning Centres for a period of time, very short period of time. I joined them at the tail end before they went into receivership and working for a company for who was in the longest receivership that Australia has seen definitely change and the way that obviously the whole story with the ABC obviously being bought out by Good Start which is a non-for-profit organisation definitely changed my whole career trajectory and definitely was a significant change in my life as well. Go back to the marriage then so what was your expectation before you got married did you always think you were going to get married? Yeah I did. Did you so you always wanted to be married? I always wanted to get married was definitely on the look for a husband when I was in my 20s. I didn't have like an age that I needed to be married by or anything like that. I was only 23 when I met my now husband. So I didn't, and I had just finished university. So it wasn't like, I was like, okay, now it's time to get married or anything like that. But I always definitely knew I was going to get married and have children. That was like, I don't know. I didn't even think you wouldn't. I don't know. No, I was interested. So where, yeah. did, where, does, where does that come from? Where do you think? Because, you know, like, did you, did, you just, did you ever consciously think about, oh, maybe I won't get married then? No, I wanted to. I wanted to. I wanted a partner. I wanted someone to spend time with. I liked my family life growing up. I liked, you know, of course, my parents fought and stuff like that. But I could see that they, we were a family unit and I wanted to create my own family unit. I'm sure society absolutely kind of instills it in you, like, you know, you don't know any different, but I don't think at any point in my life I'm sort of saying, oh, I wonder what it would have been like if I wasn't married. I I actually think it would have been harder. Like, I always think when I'm having a bad day at work, well, at least I'm going home to my husband and he loves me and we love each other and, you know, that will be cool. We'll watch some TV together and the day will be better. No, so I get that, but the, it's actual, I suppose, where I'm coming from is, do you think you could still be with him 
and be a unit without yeah. actually being married. So, Do you think the marriage bit, the actual ceremony, the whole thing, as happy as it was on that day, which yeah, I totally yeah. get, if you look back on it now... Do you, would you still do that again? Yeah. So I think – so I lived with my husband for nearly, I think, two – God, I can't even remember – two, two and a half years, maybe nearly three years before we got married, something like that. So I was living with him in the same house and then obviously we got married. I hadn't even – I didn't even change my name straight away. So nothing really fundamentally changed but we had this piece of paper but it felt different. It felt like we were now family. And I don't know what it is. Maybe the ceremony helps you to feel that way. I don't know. Not necessarily, but there was something. It was like this like line that you cross together and you're now family. So, yeah, it, I didn't think it would feel any different because we were already living together. We already, you know, had the shared bank accounts. Like f- physically, actually nothing changed. It was spiritually. And I'm not saying I'm the most spiritual person, but it was probably spiritually something changed. If you look... Where you're at now, you mentioned before about coming home and having someone there and feeling being happy. If you look at the people around you, would you say that you're very lucky because you are one of the few people you know who does have a happy marriage? Or would you say that the people that you know are also as happy as you are? So hard to say. It's like, you know, maybe, so I've been married, I think, 13, 14 years. So you would probably say in the beginning you would have assumed that maybe everyone has something similar as I've got older and, you know, I've seen more separations and divorces, I know that's not the case. So it's really hard to say. I don't know what happens behind closed doors. And how often do you hide behind a mask and you're not always being truthful to the, to the person that you're talking to? I'm not saying you're lying, but you're not really... Maybe uh, that's a work thing? Maybe that's yeah, a thing? Yeah, I, d- I do think that's a work thing. So I think sometimes also being a female as well, maybe in a senior role... You know, this is a bit stereotyped, so maybe it's not true, but I do feel like sometimes females can be more emotional when things don't go well and and they tend to not be as cool, calm and collective as a man in a situation. From my experience, it's, you know, again, I'm really not being stereotypical. That's the type of person I can be. So I definitely have a much try because some of if there's ever colleagues listening to this they would probably go mm, not necessarily but I try to have a much more reservedness around me but that's because I want to get to a certain outcome or things like that and sometimes being emotional is not going to get you there or so there's kind of like this saying you know being a swan like you look really good on the outside but underneath your feet are pedaling really fast in terms to your friends I think it depends on the relationship the friendship also, to me, it depends on where that person's at as well. So not everyone wants to hear everyone's problems. Like sometimes people just want to go out and have a good time and stuff like that. So it just depends. I've got my my mum, very close to my mum. I've got my sisters as well. So, yeah, if I'm having a hard time, I know who I can speak to. And do, but do you think the world would be a better place if people were more, perhaps more, although I get what you're saying from a work context mm. and also from friends as well, but if people weren't hiding behind masks, so when so when you talk to someone, how are you? Good, really. So everyone's good all mm. the time. You get that a lot. So I'm interested in whether you think that you've come across that in your life, where you've gone, yeah, you know what? I wish people were more open and honest about what was really going on uh, or in their lives or how they or how they felt about something, rather than give me this. The natural answer is to say yes. I also think that depends on the type of person you are. So I. I am the type of person that feels I have to solve people's problems and so sometimes if someone tell, just opens up, I will start to think about how I can help them to solve the problem, not necessarily think about, well, how do I do this as a coaching way or how do I do this in a way which helps them to solve their problem or whatever it might be. But that kind of also feels like that's quite an intense conversation so you want to be you want to be personally in the right headspace to be able to have that conversation and help people and that's not what people always want just because you say to someone hi how are you and they go well actually I'm not that good doesn't mean they want you to solve their problem but that's who I am so I put that sort of stress on myself or on that relationship too so it's it's interesting I think obviously it would be better if people just said how they are and I think obviously we wouldn't have depression rates and the illnesses and all those things that we have, absolutely. And if it was more natural, people would make more time and I don't think the saying, hi, how are you, 
would just be rhetoric. The, the fact that you recognise that you are somebody who wants to fix people's problems. Were you always like that? I think so. I As think a child, so. Yeah. Oh, I think so. I think I just I liked people to be happy. I want people to be happy. So you were a pleaser, would you say, as a person? I don't think it's a pleaser. No. You're, you're a giver then? Maybe a giver. I don't know. I don't know if those are the right words, actually. Okay, go so on. So I would say an includer. I'd say it's an includer. So an includer is sort of someone who wants people to feel like they're included, feel happy, feel part of something, not feel, you know, you know, so like... If I say something to someone and I think, oh, that was maybe a bit rude, I don't really want them to be annoyed with me or upset with me because I didn't really mean it or whatever. So I, it's, it's an includer. That's that's what my kind of strength could be or a, it could be po- positive or negative, right? And But where do you say, where would that come from? Where, where's that? Do you, can, you, can you identify where? So my mum's very similar. She wants people to be happy too. So she's definitely, so I'd say maybe she's more of a giver. I'd say she's more of a giver person. She's got more of that trait. The reason I now can probably identify it more like what exactly it is, is obviously through your careers, you do lots of personality tests and all that Um, stuff. Something symmetric. Yeah, you do a lot of those. And there's one recently that I did, which was called Gallup Strengths. It picks you and for free you get your top five strengths and one of them was an includer. And I thought, yeah, that's what it is. Like let's say there's a group of people talking and I kind of – I will notice if one person's not talking so much or a bit upset so I feel the need to try and bring them in or ask them, you know, what's wrong or something like that. Yeah, but I do like people to be happy. People who are around me who I love, I want them to be happy. I just feel secure when you're happy. It feels safe. And so, okay, going back to your mom and your family, would you say that feeling of feeling safe comes from that's how you felt as a child? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a nice feeling. So when things when things maybe got wrong, went wrong, so um, I don't know, you won't probably completely know this story, but it was probably in the 90s, early 90s, end of 80s, there was this bank called the pyramid building society. a building society that's yeah. it it's a building society they haven't here, do they? The, well, not so much anymore so they used they to right yeah, yeah they used to but the government doesn't necessarily never really saw them as banks right they were a bit like more risque but in uk it wasn't like that so if you put your money in a building society if you put your money in the bank it was the same thing but it wasn't like that here but my parents didn't know that and they put a lot of money in this building society because it had a really good interest and things like that and they lost a lot of money like a lot of money and that was really hard and a really hard time they had just finished building their house that they're in now so that's already really stressful to you know buy you know buy land build a house put money into that that was really hard and I think that was probably so that feeling of feeling like your parents aren't happy people are feeling sad it's it's not a nice feeling. It's not not it, it feels you know when I think about it, I imagine how it was dark in that period, and I don't like that feeling. I don't like that pe- feeling of people feeling sad and stuff. Is that where you would go to as as a place where you remember how that feeling to make yeah you, must make be you yeah go make, to the opposite place which yeah is what you yeah would, you yeah. Know. Talking about your parents, then what were your mum and dad like in terms of making you feel generally happy? Who was You've mentioned before that your mum was was a pleaser, is a pleaser. Yeah. What was your dad like? I don't know if he's someone who thinks about necessarily in that way of how do I make other people happy. I don't know if that would be one of his traits. But he's very outgoing. He's very social. Obviously, as he's got older, it's, it's, it's a bit different. But he's happy to do things. We always did stuff on the weekend, even if it was to go for a drive somewhere. Go, We went to restaurants. You know, I mean, his thing was to go to a restaurant where he could feed five people under $50. Like, you know, so we weren't going to the high-class restaurants. But he was very social. We were always doing something. That would probably be his. That's how it, maybe he made us happy, you know, doing stuff, being, going out having a laugh and did and as parents were they did you feel able that you could talk to them about stuff did you do that or did you spend a lot of time on your own no i definitely always spoke to my mum yeah yeah because my dad traveled heaps as well so my mum even talked to me a lot and you know had me to help her one of three girls i'm the oldest yeah i definitely we have really beautiful relationship and i think 
you know, sometimes maybe I had to be more mature to help her because my dad was away. So she's terrible, terrible with directions. Like, like you just know, like anywhere she's going to take you that's outside of Caulfield, she'll probably get lost. So before I could even drive, I knew how to read like a Melways, like a map and stuff to be able to direct her and stuff like that. So no, I think I could always talk to my mum. And I think with my dad, so he probably like helped me a lot with my homework and and stuff like that and he had his own style and the way of doing it like you know obviously when I'd like get something wrong sometimes he would scream or something like that but that was his kind of style yeah I can't I don't think I really I kind of talked to my dad but it was different I think a mum and daughter you talk about girl stuff so my dad probably wasn't you know I wouldn't really talk to him about girl stuff and things like that and in terms of when you said she would look to you for, would she, t- would she talk to you about stuff and ask for your opinion on, on things? Or how was that kind of yeah, how Yeah, I think work? so. I th- yeah, yeah. No, de- yeah. Yeah, she, she would definitely talk to me about what was going on. Not like, not anything with her relationship with my dad or anything like that, but just, you know, maybe she was worried about one of my sisters or something like that. She would say, what do you think? Uh, yeah, and she'd, she'd probably tell me things conversations she's had with her friends about their children sometimes yeah do you you think that going back to my original question of and you mentioned it has defined who you are because do you think you picked relationships based on the way that you you would feel most comfortable in that relationship in terms of whether it's your husband whether it's a friend in what terms you've, of the relationship? You've picked them on the basis that you would be somebody who's able to give them a lot of advice and offer your opinion on stuff because you, you because that's what you that's what you've done in uh, your childhood for a long period of time. No, or that's not something that's no, I th- and I think that dynamic. So I have that obviously have that dynamic with my husband now. Hence, maybe why you're saying that. I'm assuming. A little bit, but I, I'm I'm more just interested no, because, because uh, of that, what no actually yeah. where it really comes from is the way you've talked about it, the way that was, that could potentially have influenced other relationships you have with people. And you've gone, yeah. oh, you know what, even subconsciously, I've picked yeah. you as a friend yeah. because, you know what, I can see that I can help you. I can give you, you're going to want to... So I don't think friends, I think maybe it's the kind of work I do. So I now that you're saying that, it's more coming kind of coming to fruition maybe the kind of work I do and a lot of people in the work I do say oh you're easy to talk to or you really think about what I'm saying or you have a knack of someone you know we might be running a workshop and someone asks a question and most people will go I have no idea what that person's talking about and you'll be able to understand what they're talking about and things like that so maybe it's helped me in doing the type of work I do like I you know I have led quite large teams and, and things like that and had lots of team members and you have to have that patience to listen and give advice or help them. And this is, you know, coming back to my previous point earlier about being an includer or wanting to solve their problem though is me trying to not obviously solve their problem but help them to solve their problem. So do you, do you find that tough to get to that point where I, you have to go, okay, this is enough, I have to, now I have to stop? Well, it's not that I have to stop because you don't. it's not about ripping off the Band-Aid. So, you know, if you think about nurturing a toddler, when a toddler starts walking, you don't walk away and go, good on you now, you can walk. You still kind of stand behind them, right? So the idea is obviously with the work I do, let's say, and you're, you're talking to a colleague or a, a team member, et cetera, is to help them to be able to solve the problem but not solve the problem for them. So you don't rip off the Band-Aid and say, you're on your own, good luck. But what is it that you can do to help them to get to where they need to go than just putting them there, so to speak? Do you think you can read people well then? Is that a skill? So it's that's a really interesting question because I definitely try to read people. I definitely try to do it. And again, um, probably a bit more at work than anything else, but I definitely try but everything I've read about anything I've read it whatever it says you can't read people like you I mean I'm not talking about I'm not talking about like mystic stuff I'm just talking about in terms of you know books uh, especially around work I'm talking more so it you know it says you can't really read don't try and get in people's brain and understand what they're saying listen to what they're saying and I definitely though have a habit of going yep you're saying that to me but what do I really think you're saying 
which I think is an so it's interesting that I haven't I don't know that yeah. research you're referring to or, or books that talk about that as not being something that you're able to. I would say I'm very good at reading people, and I yeah. can I can look at you and go, you know what? I can see who you were as a child, and I can read what you're yeah. all about and do that. And it sounds like you you I, from I what feel you said, I can, you can do that, but I don't know if there's truth to it. But have you okay? So can you think of an example where you've done? the opposite of what you're being told you're supposed to do i.e you've gone you know what i think this person's got this issue so i'm gonna navigate my way through it to get to the point where i i and maybe you ask them directly around about whatever maybe it's a work thing maybe it's not it's a mm. friend. i don't know it doesn't matter where you've actually done that where you have gone i think this is what's going on so i'm gonna ask you in whatever way you've chosen to ask them is this going on and then you've actually got it right yeah no and i do that a lot at work okay so i do do i do use it a lot at yeah. work yeah so then you, so that, that I know, that I know, I know, but it could be experience. I, I look, but don't you I think, think you've got an innate, so I feel like I have an innate, an innate ability to be able to go what I just said. I can read you. I can yeah. see what's going on. I can tell the type of person you are. This is what's really going on here. Yeah. I think the only thing, the reason these books or whatever, the reason you have to be careful is you just want to make sure you're truly listening to someone as well. And so when you do things like that, you could guide them down a different path. It doesn't mean it's the wrong path, but it's maybe not a path that they were going to choose. So that's why uh, when you read a lot of books around coaching people or working with people, they say to truly listen to what they're saying because it also gives opportunity for it to go down different paths than you sort of pigeon holding it or guiding it down a different path or something like that so that's okay. that that's why that's why it's interesting that's why it's very interesting but yes i do think that i listen to what someone's saying but i try and i try to understand what do i think they're really saying as well which you could just ask more questions than have this assumption and have you ever got it completely wrong well, you've thought, oh, yeah, you know what? I really thought you were, oh, God, and, and their answer's not been what you t t either thought they were going to say or what they were, where they're at. Oh, look, I've, look, I don't think I've got it wrong that it's been detrimental, but maybe I've assumed someone is some uh, done something or um, is one way and, you know, you, know, you might assume a, a person is maybe – I don't know, not as nice as they really are. And then you tell someone, you say, oh, yeah, I'm sure they've done blah, blah, blah. And they've gone, oh, actually, this is what they did. And you're like, oh, okay. So there, there's been, of course, a bit of that, but nothing that's detrimental. That's yes. nothing that I can think of that's detrimental at all. No. Okay. Unless, you know, I still probably deep down think I'm right and maybe they were just right in that, you know, nice in that situation <laughs> or something like that. Having a child, you mentioned it before, how that's changed your life and um, helped you be, become the person that you were. Getting pregnant wasn't easy. No. And it took you a long time. So tell me, how did you cope mm. with that journey? Which, I mean, tell me how, how long, from when you first decided to have a child to when you actually had the child, how, mm. how long was that? Nearly 10 years. Which is Nearly 10 long years. Time. Nearly 10 years. And how did, so how did you navigate your way through those 10 years? With so um, obviously no one knows. To, to perhaps if you give me a little bit of information, the story, about, well, the, story the background, of, uh, that. Yeah, I think I first like naturally got pregnant. You know, tried naturally like everyone else. At I was probably twenty seven, twenty eight. I, I had got pregnant. I miscarried at nine weeks. I started bleeding, and at eight weeks went to the doctor. He said, "Look." It looks all right, but I don't have a crystal ball. And then a week later, I had really severe pains and I thought, this is this is not right and went back to the doctor and I had miscarried. And then, like, obviously I was trying after that and it just took me – it was taking me a long time and he put me on Clomid, which a lot of women take, which I think releases, if I remember correctly, releases more eggs. And that wasn't working and uh, sort of a year later – after that sort of uh, miscarriage, he said, "Look, go see a, go see a specialist, because you are you are trying." And so he referred me to an IVF doctor. I did lots of research before I went to meet the IVF doctor. Exactly what this was all about, etc. 
I had my first consultation and I'll never forget this. The doctor said, so what do you know about IVF? And I told him everything I'd researched. And he said, did you come here for a job or did you come here to get pregnant? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, no, 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 I came here to get pregnant, like blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, he was quite funny. And he said, did you want to go away and think about it? And I said, no, I want to do it now. And so I was with that doctor for a number of years it was really interesting because during that period like you just actually saw how IVF sort of improved you know when I first did IVF they would sort of transfer at day three they didn't really grow the embryo more and stuff like that and you know five years later they had learned you know you should grow the embryo more and stuff so more and more studies were happening and, and I really saw the progression but unfortunately in that sort of five years with him I never, ever got pregnant. I did something like, uh, I think I did four egg pickups with him and I had something like 25 transfers. Like it was crazy. And he was doing two transfers at the same time. And the transfer is? uh, When they put both like an embryo back in you. So so you do all the drugs, etc. And you, they collect the eggs. Uh, then they mix it with the sperm uh, and then it becomes an embryo and then they put that back into you and that's called the transfer. So he was doing like two at a time, which they don't really like to do because that means you can have twins and that's more complications, etc. And I, I mean, he was such a great doctor, such a lovely man. Like he even said, I remember one transfer, he said, you know, I shouldn't say this, but I want you to have this more than I want anyone else because you know, you've been with me for five years, we're doing so much. It's not, you know, anytime there was a new study, he'd say, take this, do that. After five years of not getting pregnant at all, I decided to have a bit of a break. And I did a lot of different types of Chinese medicine. I did do a bit of Chinese medicine when I was with him as well. Like I did acupuncture and I drank some herbs. But I stopped with that uh, acupuncturist as well. Just I just felt like I needed a bit of a break from all of that. And, and why did you so why did you pick Chinese medicine as a, as a route to go down to, to help you? Well, I did a bit of research and acupuncture was meant to be something that helped. And I spoke to my specialist and he said, well, it can't hurt you. And he recommended someone who's the, the wife used to work with him. So she was um, an IVF nurse and her and her husband had started this clinic. He did acupuncture and obviously vitamins and Chinese medicine and stuff. So so he said, look, it can't hurt if you want to do it. And it was very good. It was really relaxing. And, you know, you go for this acupuncture and you'd have this acupuncture before you'd have the transfer and after the transfer and all this stuff. So I did all that. I then took it like I took a bit of a break. I then went to another Chinese doctor who was Chinese, who a lot of people went to, and he has this, he does acupuncture. He doesn't give you any herbs because I was like, I am not drinking any more herbs. And he says you mustn't have anything cold or raw or anything because your stomach is like an oven, and it should be it should be warm and things like that. I went to him and. He said, I'll get you pregnant in, in, the, in the next six months. And if I don't, then you've got to go somewhere else and I can't get you pregnant. There was a pregnancy somewhere here, around here. I can't even remember. So I definitely got pregnant, I think, before I saw the Chinese doctor and also had another miscarriage. And how long into the pregnancy? Oh, it was like, again, Same like short. nine weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. short. And then so, It was even shorter, actually. It was even, yeah, probably even shorter. And so tell me how... So, so how many years now are we in? Is this like six years? Yes, yeah, it's like six years. So I had, yeah, another, and on my own. So it was, it was probably, yeah, it was either in between, it was, I think I was still doing the IVF, but I think I got pregnant on my own. Uh, I didn't even really know I was pregnant and then had some pains and stuff and did blood tests. And they were like, yeah, you're like seven weeks pregnant, but I miscarried pretty much because I was having the pains and things like that. So I didn't really know I was pregnant, like. And so, how did you how did you feel about not being pregnant, given oh. that you wanted to be pregnant? So, how did you pros? How did you deal with that? Oh, uh, like I mean, obviously, I just kept doing things. Like I was always doing something to find out how I could get pregnant. I was like a machine. I was always doing research. Where do I go? Someone tells me to go there. I went there. So that was it. Kind of became like this job, like a job. So that's that was sort of one part of dealing with it. The other part was, of course, I would get really sad every time someone had a baby. Like I got married probably 
um, earlier on than some of my good friends. And all of them got married, you know, let's say after me and then had children and then the second child and I still hadn't even had my first child. And definitely there were times where I was sad and sometimes I remember particularly there was a someone had a a birthday party for her child and it was the first birthday party and I felt really sad and I just didn't want to go and I think, you know, my husband went on his own. Um, So, yeah, definitely there was... It was it was sad. It felt like sometime constantly someone was pregnant, but in terms of what I did about it, was I was like determined. I was determined to do whatever anyone told me to do to get pregnant. But did you did you feel the need to? You may have discussed it. I'm sure with your husband. But did you go to anyone else to like you know that voice in your head, the way you felt, what you how long you've gone oh, through? How yeah. did you really? Because that's so, a lot to deal with. So I didn't until. So I went to this Chinese doctor. He couldn't get me pregnant. He suggested a, a different IVF doctor. I did some research on that particular IVF doctor and I did research on another IVF doctor and one had said, because I never really knew what was wrong with me. No one could ever tell me why I couldn't get pregnant. So all this whole time, no one could really tell me why I couldn't get pregnant, except I had PCOS, but... A lot of women have PCOS. And why couldn't you... So at this time, so at this point, I didn't know why. So I went to one doctor and he said, oh, we'll do some tests on the embryos. But that didn't sound right to me because I was like, well, there's nothing wrong with the embryos. And then I went to this other IVF doctor that the Chinese doctor had said, this is who you should go to. And he said, you have something called uh, natural killer cells where your body attacks the embryo. And I was like, this is making sense to me. He said, we'll have... I can treat it. It was, it's especially at the time, it was really like unknown what he was saying. You know, he, he was the only one kind of dealing with it. I said, okay, so then, you know, before you start the treatment and stuff, I actually got pregnant again naturally. I remember ringing him and saying, I'm pregnant. And he was like, come in straight away because I'll start giving you the medication and stuff like that. And I, I miscarried in that. And that was, that was really traumatic. I went, I thought I was doing really well. Because I was naturally pregnant, but he was giving me all the medication as if I'd been pregnant on IVF. So that was great. I thought I was doing really well. I went for my nine-week scan. I was going to Brisbane that afternoon. I had my bags packed, ready to go to Brisbane. My husband came with me for the scan. They do it. And I'd already had a scan at six weeks, and that was great. I couldn't hear a heart heartbeat but she's not saying anything at the moment she's saying oh I'm checking to see the legs and this and that and we're like what's she checking for like why isn't she telling us anything and then she said and again you know some words you'll never forget she said when you came last time for your scan what what did you hear and I said I heard the heartbeat and she said well I'm not hearing the heartbeat this time and obviously knew that I had miscarried um and yeah, it was like, it was awful because whenever I'd miscarried before, like there was pains, there was bleeding, I knew something was wrong. This was nothing. I felt there was nothing. I had no blood. I mean, and apparently I found out after it was because of all the medication I was on that kind of probably helped like me not to bleed or things like that. It was like, the, you know, when people say they're like the twilight zone. It was like the twilight zone. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm going to Brisbane this afternoon. And, you know, Matt had come, my husband had come from work, had left all his stuff at work. Like, he was planning on going back to work. We were just having a scan. Like, And so after that, I did decide to see someone because I was just like – and not that I was just so beside myself. It was like everyone else was beside themselves. So – I was upset, but like then I had to tell my mum and she was upset and I had to I felt like I had to console her and you know, people were upset for you and I was like, you know, this is just a bit much. This is like so I went to my GP and I said, Look, I think this is a bit much like I think because I was just quite convinced that this was gonna work. Like this was my story to tell. Like, you know, ten years later I get pregnant naturally. Yeah, I went to I saw a great, great a psychologist psychologist great yeah she was fantastic she deals in in this i can't remember how i found her actually i really can't remember how i found her i wish i knew because it's what she deals with 
And I don't, I don't feel like the GP recommended her. I felt like the GP appointment was really. Well, you've already said this, but you'd absolutely say that was the best thing you ever did, and given where you were at in terms of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I made such a beautiful relationship with her that she still like kind of phoned me to see how I was doing. She always thought I was just. I think she thought I was really strong, and she helped me. Obviously, I talked to her about dealing with grief and that was that was fine in fact I didn't I don't think I needed so much help with the dealing with the grief it was like how do I keep going with all of this like it's like a job and it's like you got to go for treat you got to go for tests and do medication and stuff you know and I'm, I'm still working through all of this and no one at work knew I was doing IVF I don't know what they thought when I took time off I'm sure they weren't silly but I never ever ever said that and and why tell me why I just didn't want people to go, mm, she's trying for a baby, so we may not get her to do this or, you know, she's trying for a baby. We don't want to stress her out. And whatever anyone wants to say, it, it happens because people want to help people, not because they're evil and think, oh, well, she's trying for a baby, let's cross her off. I just didn't want that in my... You didn't, didn't go back to what you said before about stereotyping about how, you know, showing your emotions and therefore you're a woman and therefore you, you know... Yeah, maybe there was a bit of that too. Yeah. Maybe there was a bit of that. But, you know, the one thing that at least if I didn't have a child, I had a really good career. And I was making a really good career for myself. And that was some, that was my no, baby. Yeah, that that was good. my baby. Yeah, in fact, when I went on maternity leave, I did feel like I was leaving my baby. And I was definitely, like, that was that was my life. Because you, you'd invested so much of your time and effort That's into it. making that work. Because you needed to make that work. I needed to make that work. That yeah. was my life. Uh, I needed to make it work, you know, for my own sanity. And I needed the money to be able to pay for all this IVF. Mm, yeah, that's true. Of course, <laughs> it was very expensive. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so she she was good because what she did for me was so in my kind of line of work I always have to think I always have to forecast and I always have to think far ahead and what's going to happen like you know always be on the ball what's going to happen in six months etc I remember saying to her you know well what will happen if you know I have to go for a transfer and I'm meant to be doing a presentation that day like you know because these things used to happen you know I've, I've got to think about that and she kind of made me go, well, what would happen if you got chicken pox and you had to do a presentation? Like, would they say, come and... Like, just really simple things. And so she either... She said this to me and so did a friend of mine who's a psychologist as well who said, the present is a present. So, like, live in the present. So she was kind of saying, in your in your current... Like, in your personal life, you need to live in the present. In your work, of course, you need to live in the future. But in the, so that really helped a lot. Um, and she kind of, you know, and a few people had got pregnant again while I was seeing her, and some had got pregnant through IVF and stuff like that. And I was just telling her how I felt about that, and she was like, "It's normal. So you're not you're not a horrible person. You're, you're normal." And yeah, so she she kind of said to me near the end okay I think you're okay and I was like okay but she kept in touch and she saw that I had a, a child you'd absolutely take it as a given there'd be huge pressures put on the two of you as a unit given what your but how did your husband deal with so he was really good he I mean obviously he was really good but I, I think sometimes actually what happens in all of this is that people do forget about the men and obviously when I had quite a few of the miscarriages Obviously, everyone was always worried about how I was and I was quite conscious that not everyone always checked in on how he was. Look, he obviously found it hard because he loves children. He's a man who probably should have had a lot of children or at least, you know, in his younger years had had like two or three children. I'm sure he would have been happy. He would just say, oh, look, I'll be happy with two, etc. And he, when he met me, he kind of wanted children to be totally honest. And I mean, I was definitely not ready. It's funny, I've got a story that I spent my 20s trying not to get pregnant and my 30s trying to get pregnant. <laughs> so he wanted children pretty much when I met him. So that was really hard that he wanted to probably be a family unit when he got married, like he was ready to have children. You know, he was like, I was, there was only so much he could physically do, right? There was, I had to take all the drugs. I had to do everything. There was, there was, no one said anything that he needed to do because it was kind of well, we didn't really know what it was, but we knew it wasn't him because they checked his sperm and that was absolutely fine. And the embryos, I was getting lots of embryos. It was just as soon as it was going in me, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't taking, or I was having miscarriages. So there wasn't much more physically he could do, but support me and you know. 
when you take all these hormones and all these drugs, like I remember like you're just so hot all the time and I think it was like winter and I made him put the air conditioning on and he, he had to sleep like with like hundreds of layers. But he was like, okay, if I need to do that, if this is going to make you happy, like you've got to inject yourself every four hours, then I'll do that. He, you know, he probably would have gone down surrogacy earlier on if I had said let's do surrogacy, to be honest. He definitely was like... When we heard like there's a colleague of mine, they did surrogacy. He was definitely interested in it. I really wasn't interested in it. Because? I really wanted to have my own baby. I wanted to know what it felt like and stuff like that. Near the end, like when I came like to the end of the 10 years, I was definitely like, okay, if this doesn't work, then I wouldn't mind looking into it. But at the six-year mark when I took a break, I really wasn't ready. I was probably more happier to say look maybe we just won't have children if this is not meant to be he definitely said it to me a couple of times look we're not supposed to have we won't but then if I pushed him on it he was like of course I want a child but he definitely wanted his own child as well did you take on though what guilt did you feel as a consequence knowing what you just said to me now you knew that he really wanted to have even earlier than you actually then started trying them for one that you were, you couldn't give him what he well, I mean, you wanted it as well, obviously. But you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. what you said about him. I don't know if I felt... Did you feel there's no I guilt? I don't then? know if it was guilt as such, if it was raw. Maybe, I mean, maybe upset for him. But I felt like we were in this together and I was doing everything possible. So maybe I would have felt guilty. I'm sure if I didn't have... If I had stopped at that six-year mark and went, all right, we've tried. It hasn't worked for us. I think we should move on. Probably there, I would have felt guilty. But even in that that six year mark, when I just I just took a break from IVF, I was still trying. I would bought all the machines that told you when you should have sex and stuff like that. So I was always trying. So for that ten year period, I couldn't feel. I never really felt guilty because I was always doing something about it. You've seen it that you've seen the therapist. She's helped you become yeah. more okay with where you're at and it sounds like she's done a really good job and you would mm. how many years now are you into that cycle so around about now probably because you eight you, eight years or so like after all of this so and then to the killer cell so wait so so this just before that so yeah i had the miscarriage i had gone in to see him once had this got pregnant had this miscarriage he obviously went to go see him again he said you need to have a bit of a break and then we try I did an egg pickup with him, got some embryos. He did this thing for natural killer cells. We did all those embryos. Again, it didn't work. And then he said, as we were doing this, he found out more about the natural killer cells. Um, so what he does is he, in his rooms, is he has this sort of like clinic area where they come and they give you um they give it to people who are malnutrition um they give you this sort of protein thing but he also then now then found out that if you go you go to i used to go to epworth to the cancer um, oncology area and they give you also another form of protein i don't can't remember what it is it's like a blood that they've stripped or something and you have that and um so they give you this malnutrition one they give you this drug you take a lot of other medication and again it still didn't work and then he found out the doctor um again really really new there is like amazing doctor he found out that maybe there was this thing where like as if matt and i are too compatible there's a gene that makes us too compatible it's it's really bizarre and he did this test and he said yes so what's happening is not only do you have the natural killer cells you're attacking you're attacking as if he's sperm or something like that you attack his sperm there's something in the both your genes and it's got nothing to do with the fact that we're both like jewish or anything like that it's just this really rare thing so what we do is we take matt's blood they do something to it i'm not really sure what and then they inject it back in me so as if like i learn to accept his antibodies i don't know um etc so we did that and how long did that go on for so we did that so we only did it we did it once and it didn't work and then he brought us in and we had two more embryos left and he said if this doesn't work this embryo we should think about for the last embryo to get a surrogate i had said to him or my sister had just had a baby and he said uh, we won't name who the doctor is because he said 
So in this country, Medicare won't cover surrogacy. And he said, I will even do it on Medicare for you because, you know, etc. But he was pretty much saying, if this doesn't work, this embryo, like, you've done everything. Like, you've done everything. And so he also specialises in um, sending people to Greece and Spain, women to get, like, to use uh, uh, egg donors and stuff like that. So he's very radical in his thinking and, and things like that. Anyway, so he said, if this doesn't work, like, and I didn't need to do that. There was nothing wrong with my eggs. But he's like, then I really, you know, I feel like we're coming to the end of the road. We need to think about, you you know, we just need to think about surrogacy. Anyway. And so go over to that mm. point then. How did you feel then? Were you, you, you just stopped seeing the, the therapist. You, you, you've been now eight, nine years into this journey. Yeah, probably nearly were 10. You, yeah. were you, were, what were you thinking? Were you, were you, do you remember how you felt? I think I felt that I was more thinking, We'll cross that bridge if we have to. Well, I remember having the discussion with Matt. So I remember, so I had the transfer with him. Ironically, we went to, or maybe not, we went to Fiji. And so I was meant to have this blood test. So you have a blood test two weeks after, but I was going to be in Fiji. So they told me to do a, a, a pee on the stick test, a pregnancy test. And so the night before I had to do the pregnancy test, we were probably we were thinking oh this hasn't really worked like it's not really worked or anything I said to Matt okay like I'm going to ring this colleague of mine I'm going to work out how he did surrogacy I was kind of like okay well that's the next thing we need to do let's you know what's the next job like we'll, we'll work out and how to do surrogacy so I don't I think by then it wasn't the same as what I was thinking say four years ago like I was like well this is really the last chance and maybe it's different if someone else tells you then you going okay what are my options if someone's going well this is your option then that's your option. And but were you exhausted as well after all this? I mean, it's a you know it's a long time amount of time. Yeah, you, you work you work hard, and then you had to do this other job in the background and yeah. deal with it on many levels. I was I was feel like I was like a machine, and I feel like like something that I'm sort of like been dealing with now. I haven't been as intense about or looked into it as much or, or done the research before I've gone to the appointment. Sometimes I even got confused which appointment I was going to and things like that's how much little I've done compared to what I did then. It was like that's what probably got me through it was just absolutely and because of the type of work I do, I can be really structured in my thinking, really planned in my thinking do research, know how to ask the right questions and things like that. So I just, I just did it. I really, I, I don't know. I don't get me wrong that I think the only times like, I mean, I got down when obviously it didn't work. I got down, like I said, when other people were having babies, that was really hard. That was really hard because you're kind of like, what am I doing wrong? Did yeah. You, did you you must have doubted yourself then in those moments where you said what because if you see you're surrounded by people who are because you're at that age where people are yeah. and it's not happening to you you'd be like well what, what am I doing like you said you doubt you doubt yourself did you do that or you didn't doubt yourself you still went okay you know it's just not happening for me and well I don't know if you can we've you look you definitely it's interesting you said did you feel guilty I don't know if it's guilt I mean. You feel a bit, yeah, you feel a bit shit. You feel a bit shit. Of course you feel a bit shit. How can you not? Like, you feel a bit shit. But I couldn't, it wasn't like I could put my finger on it and go, this is what I'm doing wrong and this is why this is not working. I'm, I'm drinking alcohol or I'm smoking cigarettes or something. You feel, you just feel shit. You feel really shit. That's it. And you feel sad and you feel... And you feel sad for other people around you too because they want you to have a child. I felt, you know, my mum was dying for me to have a child. Was it any, maybe this is too strong a word, did you resent your mother because you had to hold her hand through all of this when actually you're probably going, you know what, I've got to deal with all this myself. Why aren't you there more for me than I'm... Oh, I guess she's upset because yeah, you're your mother. Yeah. But wasn't there a point where you... And maybe it's not, I'm picking your mother. Yeah, you not resent. Her. But so so when I... Resent is, resent is too strong. But, mm. but did you not go, oh, come on, get get yourself to, you know, or your sister, or whoever it was, other people. So I didn't tell my mum when I got pregnant with Harry. I, so I didn't tell her I had a transfer. I didn't tell her. I think I even – so I don't think it resents the word, but I definitely stopped telling her when I was having transfer. So she used to take me sometimes and I stopped that. Uh, so my sister would take me if Matt couldn't take me. So obviously I just – you know, if you're not telling someone, it's probably because you, I didn't want the pressure of 
the you know I mean there is a reason why people don't tell people when they're pregnant in the first 12 weeks because obviously I think it's two and three can end in miscarriage or something like that so and it is actually a lot harder to tell people so I didn't tell her when I was pregnant with Harry until I was I was 12 weeks pregnant but I hadn't had my 13 week scan yet but I'd had my six my seven my ten and all that and I felt like I knew it was was all like good and I remember telling her and saying oh but I haven't had my 13 week scan yet and she was like oh I wish you told me like after your 13 week scan I was like oh my god I've kept this secret for three months so um, but you know I don't know she's your mum I understand but yeah I don't think I probably didn't so even though we have such a close relationship I probably wasn't saying to her oh I'm really upset I really want to have a child or anything like that I don't I don't look it was it's obviously it was more that when we had to tell her bad news, it was the way she kind of dealt with it. And, you know, even, you know, Matt found that hard. He wasn't sort of used to it and he was already dealing with grief. So I didn't want him to have to deal with more and stuff like that. Okay, talking about Matt then, it's interesting that a lot of people focus quite rightly. You're, in this case, we're talking about not being able to have a child. That The focus is on the person who's got the issue, you know, I, the mother to be, um, and likewise, with someone who has cancer, mm. you focus on the person, the mm. patient. Maybe mm. I use patient's a better word. Um, and not so much on the carer. Mm. And in this case, particularly, I think men. So I wonder, you know, there's there's not a lot out there in terms of recognising men particularly. Yeah. You know, that they, they're clearly part of this, mm. that there's, they need support as well. Yeah, and I can't remember any doctor saying to Matt, like, how are you doing? Even the doctor who, the first doctor I went to and was saying things like, you know, I want you, out of all my patients, I want you to get pregnant. I don't think he ever really checked. I can't remember him saying, oh, how was your husband or anything like that. Like, I don't really remember anyone saying it. The only time I really remember someone saying it was when I had the last miscarriage, I did have to tell work because, like I said, I was meant to go to Brisbane that afternoon um, I had a new boss starting that week and I was meant to be with him and I just, you know, I had to say something and I said, look, I've had a miscarriage. I'm not coming in for a week or so. And one of my colleagues, she said to me, how is your husband? She said, people forget to ask how the man is. People forget about the man. Definitely. And so then go forward to, well, you've already touched on it, but you got to the point where, oh my God, I'm having a baby. Having a baby. This is, this is real. This, this is, is this is happening. This is as far you'd never got. It, the problem was you couldn't just you wouldn't go. I beyond. couldn't get past ten weeks. Yeah. Okay. And so when I went for my ten week scan, I knew. I mean, I know I said this last time that I knew I was pregnant, but I was like, I am definitely like this is definitely going to be okay. I, I felt more comfortable because I felt sick. I felt like I had all the symptoms. Of course, I was nervous. I was really nervous. Matt was just so nervous. He was like you know, the same thing might got to happen. And apparently my dad knew he was going, I was going for the 10 week scan as well. And like my mum said that when she thinks about it now, like he was like in bed and he was just like sweating. Like he couldn't, and he kept saying, has Sharon rung, has Sharon rung? Like she didn't make two and two, but he was like sweating. So everyone was, but I think I felt more confident than I had been because of the way I was feeling. So yeah, that was obviously amazing. I took lots of drugs on my pregnancy. I was huge. So the pregnancy itself was fine. I was very big, so that was a bit uncomfortable. But at near the end, I was, you know, busy with work or whatever. And I remember thinking, oh, I didn't feel the baby move. Like, you know, it was sort of near the end. And I went to go, I was a bit panicky and whatever. You know, the the doctor said, look, everything's fine. And he said, look, women in yours who've waited 10 years are going to get a bit neurotic near the end. Like they can't believe it's happening. So he said, I suggest you just go for a, a scan every couple of days and just make sure everything's okay. He goes, I really recommend it. And I was like, okay. I'll. And he also wants me to have a cesarean. So he said that, you know, you've waited a long time for this. You will. So when, I didn't know. I mean, this was obviously earlier on in the in the pregnancy when we were first deciding to have a cesarean. Um, he said you waited a long time, and that you know you 
women in your situation can get more anxious. We don't want any complications. We just want this to go really smoothly for you. I think he is obviously pro Caesar as well. So uh, women at your age as well, because now by now, it was funny when I started the journey, they used to all go, oh, you're so young. You're so young. And then I hit over 36, which I think is like geriatric pregnancy. And they were like, oh, you well, you know, you are your age. So... Um, yeah, he, he had said, like, I think you should have a cesarean and just have everything quite planned. And I think that worked the best for me as well. So, yeah, I think it was just near the end. It was probably, I didn't think I was anxious, but obviously I was. But it was the best thing. I used to go every three days, make sure there was a heartbeat and and that's it. Because when you go through what I did, you you, you know, and you're constantly trying to get pregnant, you kind of know the symptoms of pregnancy, you know, your your boobs feel sore and stuff like that. And like it sounds – and I know lots of pregnant women do this. So if there's pregnant women listening, they'll totally agree. But in the first few weeks, you kind of keep touching your boobs to make sure they're sore or they feel swollen or the more you feel sick, you're like, yes, I feel sick. I used to go um, – when I used to go in, uh, to the oncology ward – And you'd be with the cancer patients and they obviously feel nauseous and they'd be like, oh, I feel nauseous. I was like, yes, I feel nauseous too. Like it's the best thing. Like it was quite ironic. Describe, you know, you have Harry. Looking back on it now, describe your emotions, how you felt. Oh, I mean... It's amazing. It's amazing. And I think that's why when I tell my story and, you you know, you ask questions around, you know, how did you feel? Of, of course, I was probably more emotional than I'm saying. But because I have what I want in the end, you go, well, it was all worth it. Like, and if I had to do it again, I'd do it again. Like, if that's what it meant right. to have my son, I mean, that's the outcome I have to get. I wouldn't do it again just for the sake of doing it again. But if it meant having Harry, I'd do it again and again and again. I'd do it. 20 times over do it as many times as you tell me he's just he's amazing he's amazing I I don't I don't know if it's just having a child or he is amazing I'm sure it's a bit of both but he is amazing and we are a family unit and he makes not just me happy he makes my husband happy he makes my family happy yeah I, I would do it again and again what advice would you give to someone given what you've been through and the story you've just told what, what, what advice would you give to people, other women in the same? Do your research. Like, so I don't know, when I was younger and you'd go to the doctor or the dentist, like it was like the Holy Grail. Like it was like they knew everything. I don't know if that's like my parents coming from India and maybe a bit of that, but they really are just humans. And so do your research as well. Make sure things feel right and sound right like like I said I could have gone down you know I felt like I was at one point standing at a path and I could have gone with one doctor who said this and another doctor that said that and so go with my gut do my research to understand because actually I could still not have got pregnant because I could have been doing something that wasn't you know that wasn't wrong with me so definitely do your research and feel like you're in not in charge of your destiny but yeah, do your research and go with your gut and don't wait to be told. Like you you have to like push, push for appointments, push for results, push what does this mean? Like I don't know because unfortunately you are just a number or another person. Like of course they care but yeah, don't sit back and wait. You, you take absolute control of it. Project manage it. <laughs> Maybe that's the right word. Project manage, project manage it. Yeah, and obviously, like, I mean, it's 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 hard. Like, you know, a lot of people said, oh, you never talked about it. You never, you know, you don't even know where to start. At the time, you don't even, it's a bit like your job. You don't even know where to start. I mean, does everyone say, oh, I'm having sex today because I'm trying for a baby? Like, it is a personal thing. I, um, when I went to the new doctor, so the doctor obviously that got me pregnant, when I had a, so... When you have a transfer, again, for women, it's it's a bit like – they say it's a bit like having a pap smear. It's actually a bit more than that. But you're awake. You're awake and they put something internally, et cetera. And I used to find it quite – not traumatic, but I did have – once my old doctor was away and I had this other doctor and he cut cut me a little bit and I was bleeding. And, you know, I found it all quite like – 
they have to like open your cervix. It's not, it's not a very pleasurable thing. And it's quite funny because when you have a baby, it's meant to be quite pleasurable. And so when I was going for my transfer with the new doctor, the nurse rang me. She said, oh, you got your transfer the next day. And I started telling her like, oh, okay. And she goes, oh, you sound really, you sound a little bit anxious. I said, I am. I, I said, I really hate it. I hate the transfer. And I said, no, it doesn't feel right to me. And she said, oh, you, we can actually put you to sleep and do it. And I said, you know what? Can I do that? And she goes, yeah. She goes, look, it's a little bit more on your body and you have to fast and this. And I was like, oh, that's fine. That's fine. I used to actually have my transfers asleep. And then after a couple of transfers, a nurse said to me, was having it. she said, oh, how come you have them asleep? Like we normally only do that when there's problems, like if people's cervix have issues and stuff. She goes, like yours just go beautifully. And I said, because... I hate it and I feel really weird doing something I hate to get pregnant. It doesn't feel right because when a man and a woman love each other, well, you know, not always, but they, whatever, they get pregnant and it feels so weird. And she goes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I said, so if I can be in a really good place, like maybe that will help. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah. Good logic. Yeah. I, so yeah, Sound I, logic. Yeah, yeah. And then look, it definitely became like – so when I had my transfer with Harry, I, I, it became such a routine thing that I remember I said to Matt, don't even come in. Just drop me off at the hospital. Why are you bothering to come in? And they'll ring you when I finish. Like that's how much it was like, eh, let's try again. Let's do this. Like, yeah, it wasn't, you know, you, I'd see people sitting there with their husbands holding hands. I was like, yeah, I'm here again. That's number like 30 or something like that. Like, yep. <laughs> Yeah, and soon I'll be I'll be doing the procedure for them. <laughs> and so, so going forward, what's it like now? He's nearly four, as you said. How a different challenge? How challenging did you find it to be a working mum, given the nature of the job mm. that you do, and that you've moved up the corporate ladder, like mm. you mentioned before? You invest a lot of time in mm. what you do. You take a lot of pride in it how do you and how do you there's two there's two questions one is how do you juggle that and also is there is there a conflict between not in a conflict because clearly you love him as you mm. just described and it's amazing but you talked about work and, and at that time mm. I guess you had to as if it was a, not a, like a child mm. it, it mm. was a, it was a journey it's been a huge mm. journey for you mm. over a long period of time how do you manage the two how do you mm. juggle how do you not let one feel like you've resentment towards another because it's taking mm. more of your time so i think when women give birth they also give birth to this sort of plate of guilt as well like there's just natural mum's guilt constantly whether you're working you're not working etc there's mum guilt and i have definitely lots of mum guilt uh, so i think like I said, every any every mum has mum guilt, whether they work or they don't work. So for me, I yeah, I feel re- I travel a lot for work, so I'm away from my son quite a bit. Sometimes in quite close quarters, and sometimes for quite a while. So I think when I say quite a while, like he won't see me from Sunday till Friday. So that's probably the longest of. I have been away longer, but he was quite young, so he wouldn't remember. That's probably the longest. And you feel you feel guilty because, I don't know, I think in the way Matt and I parent, like I'm kind of the one who thinks about the food or thinks about, um, you know, reads the school notices and things like that. So, you know, chooses the clothes he has to wear, you know, do the, the those type of stuff. So you feel quite guilty because... You want to make sure it's done for him. Not and not look. So I'm very lucky. I don't know if it's lucky, but I'm the way that my relationship with is. It's definitely co-parenting, and there's some things that he's good at, and there's some things that I'm good at, and we definitely talk about it, and we say, "Oh, you're better at the toilet training." Like he was definitely better at the toilet training stuff, so he took more control of that. I'm, you know, probably better at like like I said, the food or. You know, when he's sick, he wants more his mum and stuff like that. So, and I I try and balance it in terms of I travel a lot for work, but I do get to work from home. However, you know, there's a lot of times that Harry has said to me, you know, please don't be on the phone or please don't be on your computer, like come and pay attention to me and things like that. So 
I do obviously explain, try as much to explain to him, like if I do this call, then I can come and be with you. And I do feel when I'm with him that I can give him dedicated time because I know maybe it's a bit more limited and things like that. I mean, Matt's fantastic. He's got a great relationship with his dad. Uh, And like I said, I think we both know what we're both good at and what, you know, who should take more in charge. It's interesting when I... When I come home from being away from a trip, I definitely go into a bit of a project manage mode where I'm like, okay, is this done? Is that done? And I'm sure I stress everyone out because maybe I feel guilty that I've been away. You've talked, you've had to deal with quite a lot in your life. You've had lots of things which are amazing and you should be very grateful. I'm sure you are and all the rest of it. But you have had some real challenges. How did you, how would you say you've been able to deal with those i mean i'm obviously picking particularly on um you know not being able to have a child for 10 years yeah but, but how do you how are you, have you so talking to people okay. i think talking to people so definitely at, so with work i've always had someone i can talk to at work like who understands what i'm talking about so it's not always the same person so it's sort of like this journey and on that journey i would always have at least one friend that i could pick up the phone to and talk to and and it's funny because what you start to realize as you go through this you go oh my god what i thought last year or two years ago was so detrimental was nothing compared to what i'm dealing with now like uh, i remember my first um especially when we were sort of like, I guess, in receivership. Uh, I thought, oh, my God, and the things we were dealing with were so hard. Like now it's like, oh, my God, that was nothing. Like so – but I've always had friends that I could talk to at work. I've just – I definitely make friends easily and I can – I find it easy to talk to people. And, yeah, I had lots of – I guess because I had more time because I didn't have a child, but I would like go to – I had one particular period of my life where I would go to work at like 7.30 to meet someone for a coffee. We would have a coffee for an hour, talk about what, you know, we wanted to get out of the day or what's happening and then go and do our work. Like that's like great therapy, right, before you're going to face it. I've, I've like, yeah, I've always had someone that I could talk to and that's definitely makes a massive, massive difference um, and also helps not to bring home your work shit really. Because you kind of got it off your chest with someone else. You've talked about it. We now have a policy at work where you can't talk in the car because it's actually really dangerous. Uh, it's like having like a blood alcohol level of over 0.05 or whatever. You are. It's like So we actually have a policy that you can't talk. But before that, I that's what I did. I'd get in the car and I'd, on my way home, who am I going to ring? Who am I going to talk to? 100%. And most of the time it was a work person. So I didn't really talk to people Besides Matt, I really didn't talk to people outside my work about work. I just, I don't know. First of all, I don't even know if people can understand. Not that they can't understand the work or anything, but it's not the same. It's not the same. They don't know the people and things like that. So, yes, definitely talking to people is massive. But people who are interested in what you have to say. Uh, and also kind of, I think, going through it with you makes a difference too. Yeah, no, for sure. I agree with that completely. Okay. That feels like a good place to end. Cool. Thank you very much Thank for you. your time. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to More Real. I truly hope you've enjoyed the experience and that you will continue to be here to explore real life with me. If you have, please tell anyone you know about More Real. I love creating a space for real conversations. So if you know anyone who would want to be on this podcast, please email me at morereal one one is spelt O-N-E, at gmail.com. Once again, morerealone at gmail.com. I'm very grateful, as always, for your support.